Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our Bibles to the 12th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 12, our text this morning, verses 49 through 59, the title of the message, The Surprising Jesus. We're making our way slowly and methodically through Luke's Gospel. It's a very rich book and we don't want to rush, but uh, you'll remember that the action recorded here in this 12th chapter occurred in the region of Judea, immediately following a luncheon that Jesus had attended in the home of one of the religious Pharisees. And after the luncheon, he walked outside and was immediately surrounded by throngs of people. The New Testament describes it as tens of thousands of people. And he gathered, though, his inner circle in front of him, and he began to teach to them directly. Now, the other people were leaning in. We take it, trying to listen. But he's talking specifically to the twelve, and he gives them three warnings. The first warning, he said, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Don't be like those guys I just had lunch with who are religious hypocrites. They pretend to love God, but their heart is far from Him. Don't be like them. But then he says, you also have to watch out for the sin of greed. And he gave the parable of the foolish farmer who had a bumper crop, but instead of being rich towards God, he turned inward. He put his feet up and said, I'm going to live a long life and have plenty for me and mine. The Bible called him a fool because he wasn't rich towards God. And then the third warning we saw last week was beware of not being ready for Jesus' second coming. Be ready for judgment, he says. We looked in some detail in in each of these three warnings. And you might notice that those three warnings, those things that Jesus said, are not the things that our culture tends to remember or say about Jesus' teaching. Because our culture is enamored with the Jesus of their own imagination, not the Jesus of the Bible. What I mean by that is that the Jesus of our culture's imagination says nothing but kind and encouraging things. Whatever makes you happy, man. That's the Jesus of our culture's imagination. He never talks about sin, and he certainly never judges anyone or anything. But as I said, that's the Jesus of imagination, not the Jesus of the Bible. We are committed here to teaching the whole counsel of God, including those things that the culture would find surprising about Jesus and certainly things that come from the mouth of Jesus. So we have in our text this morning some of those surprising statements from the Lord. Let's read our text. Luke 12, beginning in verse 49, Jesus says, I have come to cast fire upon the earth. And how I wish it was already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I come to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And he was also saying to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say a shower is coming, and so it turns out. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say it will be a hot day, and it turns out that way. You hypocrites, you know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky, 
but why do you not analyze these present times? And why do you not even on your own initiative judge what is right? For while you are going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate, on your way there, make an effort to settle with him so that you, he may not drag you before the judge and the judge turn you over to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. And I say to you, you will not get out of there until you have paid the very last cent. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Now, the message from Christ we find here in Luke 12 surprises many people because it is a message of division. Jesus says, I have come to cast fire upon the earth. Now, when he says, I have come, that's a statement he makes several times in the gospel. And what follows upon its heels is a declaration of his mission. He said, I have come to seek and save the lost. This is his mission. And so when he says, I have come to cast fire on the earth, he's saying, I have come to judge ultimately. Fire speaks of judgment. Fire purifies and exposes that which is true and valuable, but it consumes that which is worthless. He says, I have a baptism to undergo. Now, Jesus had already been baptized by water in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. So he's certainly not talking about water baptism. The word in the Greek, baptizo, means to be fully immersed. And so Jesus is going to ultimately be fully immersed in the judgment of God. That's the baptism of his passion and ultimately of the cross, I take it. And he says, because of that, I am distressed. Now, you may never think of Jesus as being distressed, but uh, he was. Oftentimes in his humanity, Jesus was altogether God, but he was altogether human. Scripture says he was tempted in every way that we are, and he had stress. That stress, of course, came to a climax there in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night of Jesus' arrest. Do you remember he uh, left that upper room and went to the garden with his disciples and called upon those closest to him to pray with them and they went to sleep multiple times. But Jesus retreated into the garden, poured out his heart before the Father and says, if there's any other way, let this cup, this cup of suffering, this cup of wrath pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And the scripture says he sweat as it were, great drops of blood. That is incredible stress. And Jesus, though, thought of the cross, I take it often, all the way up until the very act. And so he says, do you suppose? Now, Jesus there is speaking of the Christ of imagination. People suppose and imagine all kinds of things about Jesus that aren't so. And so he asked them, knowing their hearts, do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? Now, he's speaking to Jewish people, and they knew that the prophecies of the Messiah talked about an age of peace that would be ushered in where the Messiah would rule and reign upon his throne in Jerusalem. And ultimately that would happen and will happen, but it's not yet. As I've often said to you, there is a heaven and this ain't it. And they had the idea that he was coming to establish an earthly government, that he would cast off the Roman oppressors, but they failed to understand that he came to judge them as well. They knew the Gentiles were sinners they knew the Samaritans were sinners. They failed to understand that they also needed a Savior. So he says, do you suppose that I came to bring peace? He says, I came to bring division. Now this is at odds with the Jesus of cultural imag uh, imagination. They think of a Jesus that's uh, carrying the peace symbol around. 
But, but Jesus says, I came to cause division. So the question is, in what way, in what capacity does Jesus cause division? Well, at every level, at the macro level, at the micro level, at the national level and governmental level, and we saw how that leads to persecution and may one day lead to persecution here. But he starts at the family level, the basic institution that God put into order the family. He says, I come to bring division and alienation in the family. Now, he illustrates this by giving us uh, an example of a family of five, a father, a mother, a daughter, a son, and then the son's wife. And it was very common in the ancient world for several generations to live in the same home. It was a cultural matter as well as a financial matter. That, by the way, is becoming the norm in certain parts of our country, again, simply because of housing prices. Last year, I visited my friend who pastors in the San Francisco Bay area. And his church is located in a very blue collar neighborhood that was built immediately following World War II. Little tract homes, 1,200 to 1,500 square foot homes. And there's not a home in his neighborhood listed on the market at less than $800,000. And the price of housing in Northern California has priced many and even most young couples out of even the possibility of owning their own home. And so what do they do? They move into the home with their parents. And next thing you know, the grandchildren are moving in. And, and, and the net effect was this. One evening we were driving on the back streets of that neighborhood and I found it nearly impassable. It took us 10 minutes to go through one little side street because we were avoiding the many cars and trucks that were lined up upon the road. And I said, why are there so many cars? Is everyone having a party tonight? He said, no, it's like this because there are three or four generations living in every home. And they drive and go to work, but they have no hope of owning their own home. The point is this, that's the way it was in the ancient world. Someone would establish a home and then his children and their children would move in. And Jesus says, even in a large, we would think closely knit, extended family situation, the gospel will bring ultimately division. The point is this, some in that house will receive Jesus and be saved and others in that house will reject Jesus and it will by its nature cause conflict and division in the home. He says, three will be against two. Two against three, the father against the son, the son against uh, the father, the mother against the daughter, so on and so forth. And if you think that is a metaphor, it is not. The Lord Jesus Christ causes division in families, particularly religious families. I have an acquaintance right here in the Metroplex who grew up in a very devout Jewish home. And as, a, as an adult, she was marvelously saved. But when she announced to her family her allegiance to Jesus Christ, her parents went to the funeral home and purchased a casket and invited their extended family and they had a funeral for her even though she was very much alive. Symbolically they were saying, you are no longer alive to us. You are out of our family because of your allegiance to Christ. And friends, Jesus says not only does the gospel bring division in homes, that division ultimately will be permanent. Turn over a couple of pages to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, let your eyes fall to verse 26. Now, last week we looked at Jesus' warning to be ready for his second coming. And he's gracious a number of places to tell us what are some of the signs of his second coming. And Luke chapter 17 is one of those places. 
But look to verse 26 as Jesus describes what society is going to be like when he comes back. He says, verse 26, and just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. That is, they were living life as they always did. They gave no heed to Noah's warnings that a flood was coming. Verse 28, it was the same as happened in the days of Lot when they were eating and drinking and buying and selling. They were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is in the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you on that night, now hear this, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. Now that's a husband and wife, I take it. And on the day of the Lord's second coming, one will be judged and one will be rewarded. He said there will be two women grinding in the same place. One will be taken, the other left. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other will be left. That's what Jesus means when He says, I did not come to bring peace, but division. Now, Jesus brought a message of division, but also He issued, secondly, a call for discernment. Look at verse 54. We're now back in Luke chapter 12. Luke 12, 54, and he was also saying to the crowds, are you notice? He looks now over the shoulders of his 12 apostles. He's been speaking directly to them. Now he addresses himself to these tens of thousands of people, the crowds. He says, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say a shower is coming and so it turns out. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say it will be a hot day and it turns out that way. You hypocrites, you know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not analyze this present time? Now, this was the complaint, the accusation that Jesus often brought against those, especially Jewish people, where he primarily did his ministry, that they failed to rightly analyze the data. Now, people have not changed much in the 2,000 years since this book was written, the book of Luke. One of the preoccupations with ancient life was the discussion about the weather. Now, of course, those people did not have Pete Delkus or weatherchannel.com. So they had learned to watch for the telltale signs in the sky and the changes in the atmosphere that helped them prepare for changes in weather. Jesus gives two examples of signs that even a small child knew about, about the weather. First of all, he said, you see a cloud rising in the west. Now, you know that Israel is located on the Mediterranean Sea, which is located to the west of Jerusalem. And so, if you're in Judea, and in the afternoon you see a cloud forming out over the Mediterranean Sea, you've lived long enough to know that likely what's going to happen is that's going to blow inward and give you a thunderstorm in the afternoon. If any of you have ever lived along the Gulf Coast, you know that's almost a daily occurrence in the summer months. That moisture collects out over the gulf, comes inward, and you have an afternoon shower that cools things off. And then he gives a second. He says, if you feel a south wind on your face, you know it's going to be a hot day. Of course, there was a, a desert located to their south, and those winds would come off the mountain slopes, cross the desert, and they'd say, well, it's going to be a hot one today, and it often was. 
So Jesus says, so you've learned to read the basic signs of the atmosphere, yet you fail to see the surer signs in the scriptures. God has provided a sure testimony than signs about the weather concerning his son. He has given us his direct revelation. They had the Old Testament scriptures, which told them in incredible detail who the Messiah was going to be and what he would be like. Even told what village he would be born in, Bethlehem, Ephratah. The nature of his ministry in Isaiah, that he would be the suffering servant. By his stripes we would be healed, that he would be meek and humble, lowly. We read his genealogy, that he would be from the descendant of David. We saw, they did in their lifetime, signs and wonders that verified his claims to be the Messiah. He walked on water. He raised the dead, for goodness sake. Turned the water into wine. Miracle after miracle, sign after sign, yet it was never enough. They always wanted one more sign. And as I've said many times, it was not for lack of evidence that the Jewish people failed to believe in large. It was for hardness of heart. But then many of us would say, Lord, I know you've given us the Bible. I know you've given us your revelation in nature. But if you would just speak out loud, then I'd believe. Well, be careful what you wish for, because that's exactly what God the Father did for them. On the day of Jesus' baptism, a voice from heaven thundered and said, Behold my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. It was not enough. They still stubbornly wouldn't believe. The question is, Why? Why did so many of these that Jesus addresses as the crowd, why were they still seeking to straddle the theological fence? One foot with Jesus. They were interested in what he had to say. They followed him around. They were entertained by his miracles, but they were unwilling to commit their life to him because they had the other foot in the world. And I think it was because of fear. They were fearful because Jesus was clear about the ramifications of a fully orbed allegiance to him. He warned them, wouldn't be an easy road. You're going to face persecution. A servant is not better than his master. You ever noticed how Jesus did evangelism a lot differently than most people do today? He didn't say, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. If you're bored or lonely, try Jesus. If you've tried everything else, give Jesus a try. That's not what he said. So if you're going to follow me, you have to die yourself. You have to take up your cross daily and follow me. You have to be willing to part with any and everything else that would vie for the allegiance that is, on, is owed only to me. That is the Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus of our culture's imagination. And here he is again saying to these people, rebuking these people, you see the signs in the sky and you can predict the weather, but you don't recognize God when he's standing in front of your face. They knew that if they declared their allegiance to Christ, that it would cost them their families in many cases, and many of them were unwilling to give that up. Yes, because of the bonds of family life, but I think because some of them were expecting an inheritance one day, and they weren't about to give that up. That's why Jesus says, uh, sell all you have and, and follow me. But there is a promise, friends, about those who will part with everything else for the sake of following Christ. It's in Mark chapter 10, verse 28. Just mark it in your Bible and go back and read it later. But mark it big and bold because I want you to remember this, Mark 10, 28. 
See, this isn't the only place in Scripture where Jesus calls people that kind of full allegiance and devotion to Him. It's what He preached everywhere He went. And so in Mark 10, 28, after He'd said something like that there, Peter began to say to Him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus was the spokesman for the twelve. We apostles, we've left everything to follow you. He meant they'd left their fishing nets and their tax booths, and he was right, they had. Jesus said, hear this, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in this present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Now don't listen to the prosperity preachers who use this as a proof text that uh, God has promised you wealth in this life. Because he says if you follow him, you give up everything. If you lose your family for the sake of the gospel, you lose your business, your bank account for the sake of the gospel. God has promised us to give you a hundredfold more in this life. They said, aha! He, he, he's saying he's going to make us wealthy. No. What he means by that clearly from the context is... If you lose your mom or dad or sister and brother for the sake of following Christ, that relationship is severed. What's going to happen is that you're going to multiply that by Christian brothers and sisters a hundred times over. Some of you can give testimony that's the truth, right? And I'll tell you how it's the truth. We have two mission teams out this week. One led by G.H. Kane. In fact, he is the team is in Mali representing our church. And they're gathering all the believers of the Yalunkas. We're going to have, they're going to have a wonderful meeting there. Now, G.H. Kane is an Aggie through and through. And those people speak French and a number of ancient dialects. But I guarantee you when they get together, they're going to have something in common. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. And Lawrence Duhon and Russ Adams are having church this morning with Eskimos. Literally. In the Arctic of Alaska, but they're going to find their brothers and sisters in Christ. If you've lost family in this life, you've gained more through the church. Wherever we go in the world, we find brothers and sisters in Christ. We say, well, what about the material? He says, if I've lost houses or businesses or farms, right? You remember what Acts chapter 4 says? After the day of Pentecost, the Lord was adding to the church daily, such as were being saved. And no one said that his property was his own. But they were selling it and giving it to meet the needs as any man had need. Meaning that when you're part of the church, you have access to the material possessions of everyone else in the church, right? Through the proper channels, of course. But that means if you see a brother or sister in need, it becomes our responsibility to help them if we have the means to do so. In fact, the scripture says, how does the love of God dwell in you if you see a brother in need and you don't help? That's what he means when he says, if you've lost material possessions or even have family ties severed, you've gained a hundred times more through the church. Finally and thirdly, he gives a warning against waiting. Look at verse 57 here in Luke 12. Verse 57, he says, And why do you not even of your own initiative judge what is right? For while you are going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate on your way there, make an effort to settle with him 
so that he may not drag you before the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you in prison. I say to you, you will not get out of there until you've paid the very last cent. Now here's a person who owes a debt. And in the ancient world, they had debtor's prison. And there's a judgment day coming, Jesus is saying. Remember, that's how he led. He says, I come to bring fires of judgment upon the earth, and that day is coming, and you better be ready, and you owe a debt. Now, that is the primary difference between our culture's imaginary Jesus and the Jesus of the Bible. You notice that the imaginary Jesus never judges. Whatever makes you happy, he approves of. Just live your truth as you understand it, and it's all going to work out in the end. And friends, every born-again believer has the responsibility to look our culture in the eyes and says, that's not so. Jesus promises that one day he's coming in judgment. And he says it's not okay to believe anything you want to believe. In fact, just the opposite. He says there is one and only way to heaven. And it's a narrow and a difficult path and it's entered to by a small gate. And I take it the sign on that entrance gate says salvation by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. And you say, Pastor, that's awfully exclusive. It is. I don't know of anything more exclusive than the gospel message. Jesus says it this way in John chapter 14. Of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. The Jesus of culture imagination wouldn't say that, would he? He'd say all paths lead to heaven. Whatever you want to believe, as long as you're sincere. And that's why we need to reject the Jesus of cultural imagination and trust the Jesus of the Bible. Because the New Testament gives clear testimony that when Jesus returns, it's not going to be on the foal of a donkey. It's going to be on a white war horse, and it will be to judge the living and the dead. And the scripture says he will sit on his throne. He will occupy the place of authority, and he will judge. He will separate the sheep from the goats, the lost from the saved. It will be his final act of division. And he's saying to these crowds, you better be ready. He has pointed out their sinfulness. He has called them to repentance. He said, you owe a debt. There is a lien upon your eternal soul that is owed to God because he is the righteous judge. And he says, what you better do is settle your account before you get to the judge. Your lawyer would probably give you the same advice if you were guilty and you owed a debt. It's better to settle out of court because if it gets to the judge and you get a strict judge, you may be in trouble. He says, if your case goes to the judge, you're going to end up in prison. And friends, this is a metaphor, and the metaphor for prison is hell. Settle your account before you get before the judge, God, because he's going to find you guilty, and when you're found guilty, he's going to cast you into hell. Well, the question is, how do I settle my account? Well, that is the question of questions, isn't it? Now, a lot of religions try to answer that question by doing good deeds, of course. I've got to make up for my debts through some credits. And when they even out, then I'm good. Even the Roman Catholics teach purgatory, right? Even if you have faith in Christ, you still got to get your credits up. 
in purgatory before you can go to heaven. Friends, that's not what the Bible teaches. That is the God of our imagination once again. God has revealed himself clearly in the Bible and what he has said is there's only one hope of being made right with God and that is to have someone else pay your debt. And no one else is qualified to do that than Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus died on the cross as your substitute. This is the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. Jesus took the punishment that you and I deserved on himself. He that knew no sin, the Lord Jesus, became sin for our sake. Now how do we access that forgiveness? By faith, by simple trust and belief. Romans chapter 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. doesn't have one verse about earning your way or making your credits equal with your debits. It just says, believe on Christ. And that is what Jesus is saying to these throngs of people that have heard him teach day after day. They've seen him perform miracle after miracle. He says, open your eyes. Have a right analysis of your own situation. That was their primary problem. Look what he says in verse 57. Why do you not even on your own initiative judge what is right? You, you don't have a right assessment of your own condition. And by and large, those in our day don't. And when you say to them, look, are, are you a sinner? They'll say something like, well, you know, I'm not perfect, but. And you know when that person says, but, they have not yet come to have God's perspective on their sin. It's not until a person says, you know what, I am a sinner. What the Bible says about me is true. I have a correct assessment of my own condition, which is lost and depraved and hopeless and helpless. Now, when a person gets to that position, they're right on the doorstep of getting saved. Now, I grew up in rural Mississippi among rural backwood folk. And I love them still. I'm one of them. And we had a couple in our church down in South Mississippi called the Loftons. A lot of Loftons in South Mississippi. And Mr. Lofton, one night after church, went to bed. He and his wife, Mrs. Lofton, about two in the morning, she elbowed him hard in the kidneys. And said, Joe, wake up. I think I'm lost. She was under conviction of the Holy Spirit. And Joe Lofton said, get lost her. About an hour later, she elbowed him in the ribs again. He said, Joe, I think I'm lost. He said, get lost her. About five in the morning, she shook him awake and said, Joe, I know I'm lost. And he said, well, put your coat on. Let's go see the preacher. He understood in his way that until she had a right assessment of her spiritual condition, she could not and would not be saved. And when she came to a place where she knew what God said about her and his, his word was true, that she was hopeless and helpless about him, now she was in a posture that the Lord would honor. And friend, that's true not just of Geraldine Lofton. That is true of every person in this room. When you come to a place and you say, Lord, I've done it my way all my life and it has failed at every turn. 
And I recognize now the reason why I am a sinner. What Romans 3.23 says about humanity is true of me. I fall short of your glory. I have no hope of heaven outside of your grace through Jesus Christ. Now you're in a position of prayer that the Lord will hear. Because he says all those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And here today, if you've never done so, the Holy Spirit is prompting your spirit, opening your spiritual eyes. The first step is to rightly judge your own condition. You're not in need of reformation. You're in need of regeneration. You need to be born again. You need to be made new by the Holy Spirit. Right where you are, just call out to Him and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm desperate. I'm hopeless. I'm helpless. Without you, I will surely perish. That's what it means to make things right before you get to the judge. Because one day, every one of us is going to stand before the Lord and give an account of our life. And the only question that matters is what did you do with Jesus? Did you receive Him? Did you turn from sins? Did you live your life for Him? Or did you reject Him? And if you reject Him, you're going to be judged based on your own merits. And friends, every one of us judged on our own merits will fall short of heaven. But every one of us who are in Christ have no fear of judgment. Romans tells us this, that there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. That's the, I think, the greatest verse in the Bible. There is therefore, because of what Jesus has done, no condemnation, ultimate judgment for all of those who are in Christ Jesus. To be saved means to be immersed into the person and work of Jesus. I call upon you today to repent and be saved. If you are saved, thank the Lord for your salvation. Live the rest of your life for His glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, what a gracious, if surprising, group of verses. It's not what the culture would expect Jesus to say. He speaks of the fires of judgment. He speaks of familial division. He speaks of a righteous judge. And yet, Lord, those are themes throughout the Bible. Help us, Lord, to have a right view of you, a biblical view of you. Help us to reject what the world tells us about you. Father, I would pray if there's even one in this room today who has believed the lie of the cultural Jesus until today, I pray you'd open their eyes by your spirit as they've heard this message proclaimed. I pray you would convict their heart of a need of a Savior. I pray, Lord, that you would remind them of the judgment that is to come. And I pray, but as they still have opportunity before they stand before the judge to make their account right through faith in Christ alone. Thank you for many in this room. We've been walking with you for many years. I pray, Lord, that these truths we've heard today would help us to be equipped to evangelize in an effective way in days ahead. We give you glory for what you're about to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.